You are listening to a bonus episode of the System Save Me podcast. And today we're going to be talking about being biracial. And I specifically reached out and curated a group of business owners who are also biracial. I have Jerisha Hawk joining me, who is a business coach. And then I have Nicole Cottrell, who is a, she's got the Instagram handle at Startup Wife. She helps wives or other partners who are in support of their startup founder husbands, entrepreneurial husbands or partners. So she does some really cool work. And this conversation was really awesome. You know, I felt seen, heard, understood, and with a lot of the racial tensions still being extremely high as they should be. I wanted to continue the conversation. And here was one way that I believed would be interesting to a lot of people as myself, Jerisha and Nicole all are biracial or mixed with black and white. And so I'm really honored and excited that you're here to listen to this episode. So stay tuned. Hey, I'm Jordan and my business love language is efficiency because who doesn't want to sip pina coladas on the beach while your business runs on autopilot? We're here to help overworked one woman shows become streamlined solopreneurs. And now with over 150,000 downloads, this is the System Save Me podcast. Hey y'all, I'm so excited to introduce you to these amazing other biracial beauties on this particular panel. And so I'm going to let them introduce themselves. And so Miss Nicole, go ahead and share with us who you are and what you do. Okay. I'm Nicole Cottrell and let's see, well, we're talking about biraciality. So I am biracial with a black father and a white mom, primarily raised by my mom, but I'm sure we'll get into all of that too, as we go. What do I do? I do a lot of different things. Like a lot of us, I wear a lot of different hats. I'm a homeschool mom, but I also have a company that helps bridge the gap between entrepreneurs and their spouses. Um, for those of us that are married to entrepreneurs and we feel like we don't understand why they have to do what they do to really help the communication in those relationships. And then I'm also a co-founder of a local ministry that empowers women. So among other things. Yeah. <laughs> all the identities, right? <laughs> Bring them all to the table. Awesome. I'm so glad that you're here. And then Ms. Teresha, if you want to introduce yourself and who you are and what you do. Yes, yes. I'll follow Nicole's lead there by disclosing the parental breakdown. So my mother is white. My father is black and Puerto Rican. And what I do, I have an online coaching business and we teach other coaches and service providers how to articulate their value, raise their rates and organically launch high ticket group coaching programs. I'm a dog mom outside of my nine to five. I'm trying to get hobbies. So Jordan, you'd be happy. I just started puzzling last week. Um, And I'm still working on my little beach house puzzle right now. That's what's consuming my time. Yeah, no, that's super, super awesome. And I will reintroduce myself. If this is the first episode that you're hearing on the podcast. I'm Jordan Gill, and I'm the founder of System Saved Me, which is all things systems goodness. So automations, integrations, all the Asians. And I am a dog mom as well to a bi- biracial dog. She is partially poodle and partially King Charles Cavalier. And my parents are, my mom is white and my dad is African-American. And and yeah, that's pretty much all I do too. I puzzle. It's pretty much my life. And so, yeah, I'm super excited to have this conversation again, because if this is the first time that you are hearing 
or experiencing the lens or perspective of a biracial or mixed person, then you are in the right place. And we appreciate you being open-minded and having an ear to listen as we kind of disclose our experiences in our lives. And so the first question I wanted to come up with is usually the first question that a lot of us are asked. when we're in different situations, whether it's in business or life. And that is the question, what are you? Which I know for me, kind of, I have a little bit of a visceral response to not as much as I used to, but I would love to hear from both of y'all how you were first responded to that question. So if you can think back a while to maybe the first or first few times that you've been asked that, and then how you now respond to it with understanding why people are asking that from a different lens. So take it away, either one of you. <laughs> I'm like we're both we're all like ah, I don't know <laughs> but just like I guess maybe that'll even like I guess I can start with that like the first time I was in elementary school when I got that question I was like this response like what what do you mean what am I and at the time my so my mom left when I was two and my dad was raising me at the time when I was in elementary school um, and I went to a predominantly white school and my dad didn't know how to like deal with my curls Mm-hmm. So it was just like this, like Lion King mane of a, I hated my curls so much for so long. Cause it just, I didn't know how to manage them or take care of them. And obviously my dad didn't at the time either. So I was in elementary school the first time somebody had asked me that question and it was just like, I didn't know there was, I didn't know how to answer the question. Mm-hmm. And I knew that when I was in class, I didn't see other kids who looked like me, but it didn't really like hit me until like a kid asked that question and I don't remember how I even responded at the time but the only thing I kind of remember is having like this like like what do you mean what am I type of thing and then how I respond to it now or I think about it now it's interesting because I definitely identify more with my black side because my black grandmother and aunt raised me for the majority of my life but it's I'll just share a recent example I had a client I did a live stream video talking about like race and having conscious conversations during this time period and I had the conversation with a white woman on my Facebook page and one of my clients had reached out and she didn't know that I was biracial so as we're having this conversation and she was telling me her perspective on like why would I have a white woman come on my platform and talk about conscious conversations from a racial dynamic and she was like, you're a black woman, like you're supposed to be for us. And I'm like, I'm biracial and I'm for like the advancement of like all here. Like it's not just a one side flip coin. And then that's when the, at the question of like, well, wait a minute, what are you? In that context, I'm like, you know, I'm biracial. This is my family dynamic. These are the perspectives that I'm bringing to the table. And it was just really interesting. Her response was like, whoa, okay. Like maybe I jumped the gun on my judgment or how I perceived that conversation or just perceived a lot. Mm -hmm. And it just, I don't know. But I just thought that was interesting how even like today, just because of like external like appearances, how people can just assume one thing or another. And just because of that assumption, Mm-hmm. They will then categorize you and treat you differently because of it. So that's really interesting. It's very clear. One of the stories that comes to my mind is I was at uh, Six Flags with my dad and a friend, a white friend, but we, there was a girl in line and she was kind of watching us. And I, you know, I said something like, oh, dad, something, something. This blonde girl comes running over and she's like, wait, wait, is this your dad? And she did this whole weird, like public thing. And she was like, I don't even think she used the word mix. I don't know what she said, but I remember her just, and she was like, this is so cool. And I was like, this is a very weird, uncomfortable (laughs) response. And 
you know, I kind of laughed it off, but my, and my dad and I kind of laughed, but we, I remember us looking at each other, like, this is so strange, but people would have those kind of like outward excited. And one of the words that I always use with people is you can start to feel like a specimen. It can feel a little bit like you're under a microscope and you're the, you're, you know, you're the exotic, whatever. And people want to ask you all the questions. And I think that truly, like, to be very honest, by the time I got to college, I just, I wouldn't answer people. And I actually would tell people that I was Latin because I didn't want the conversation. And I disassociated so much from just even having explained to people because people would say, oh, well, who do you identify more with? And who raised you? And which parents white? And which parents black? You just get a barrage of questions. And I just shut it down for a very long time. Not until I started having kids did I think, oh, well, it's really important (laughs) that I be very vocal about what I am and who I am and who my family is. And so that's been like a long, slow healing process. But for a long time, I just didn't want to talk to people about it. I mean, I said no for a long time. Now, it depends on the context. It depends on how people approach me. If someone I think is genuinely being curious and kind, I'm happy to answer questions. If you catch me on a bad day or you come at it like you like I owe you an answer, which I feel like people get like, well, they, you should tell me, then I probably won't answer you. I'll probably just give you like a, you know, two word answer and be on my way. So it does depend. Yeah. I definitely relate to the tiredness of having to answer that question because like strangers on the street, I know, well, literally they don't even say like, hello, how are you? Good morning. And well, it's like, Hey, what are you? And it's like, hi, (laughs) is that all you need right now? And so I totally get that disassociating. And I feel like identity is still such a difficult concept for me. It feels very heated. It feels like it's just something that is confusing and I don't like to talk about or I don't like to dive deep into because there is such an emotional experience with being, you know, biracial. And so I would say that one of the first ones that comes to mind for me, because I have a terrible memory, is actually in when I was taking my SATs. And that would have been in 2007, I believe. And so SATs, ACT is one of those. And you know, you got the bubble sheet, and you have to decide which one you are. Because even in 2007, which really wasn't that long ago, you had to choose. There was no two or more races. There was no biracial. There was no choose one or more. It literally was a choice. And I remember raising my hand. I went to a, a, actually it was a pretty diverse school, but more white and Middle Eastern, honestly, which was really interesting. And so, you know, I raised my hand and I said, you know, I'm biracial, so I need to fill these two bubbles. Can I fill the two bubbles? And he's like, no, you can only choose one, but I would encourage you to choose the black one so you'll get more scholarships. I had the literal exact same thing happen. I'm like, glad you brought up that. Yeah. It was one of those moments that I just was like, I, one, I don't like the fact that I have to choose because I truly am biracial. I am mama's like French white, dad is African-American. And I did not like the fact that I had to choose. And then I also did not like the, and I'm, again, I try to think that people are well-intentioned and just, you know, are doing the best that they can with what they know and understand. It was so, it felt very disempowering to have somebody say like, 
take advantage of the fact that you're half black was how I perceived that statement. And that didn't feel good because it's like, it's not about taking advantage. Like one, I am partially black. And secondly, I'm too racist. And so I remember having that response then. And then now, you know, I pretty much, yeah, I try to keep it real short and I'm just like, I'm biracial or like, sometimes I will just say I'm something really random. I'll just be like, oh, I'm Filipino or like, <laughs> like whatever. Cause I don't really want to have the conversation of like, oh, that's interesting. Which side is which? And like, it just, and again, I think people are well-intentioned. However, it just can elicit a lot of biases from them or they're trying to put you in a box and that's what we all do right with a lot of things but I think that it doesn't allow you a lot of space to be who you are because they're trying to put you in a box they are trying to find okay square peg where's the square peg like let me just find it and so I agree with Nicole I'll just kind of like wherever I'm at I'm just like yeah yeah I'm this random thing because I just want to avoid the conversation as a whole and so you know, with that, I'm super curious about, you know, if you guys are close to one side of your family, I know Jerisha and I think mainly Jerisha, you touched on being closer to one side than the other, or if you feel like you experience one side's narrative or culture or beliefs than the other, or like how you navigate holding space for both of those and what that even looks like on a daily basis. So I don't know, Nicole, if you want to go first on this one. Gosh, it's it's such a hard question to think through. I really, it's weird. I was raised by my white family. I mean, my mom was raised by my mom. My parents split up when I was really young. I was two when they got a divorce. But I spent a lot of time with my black family growing up. And I did live with my black family in LA. My grandmother lived in South Central Los Angeles. And that's where I spent a lot of my childhood. And so it's really I think that if I hadn't had that experience, it would have been really easy for me to say that I'd probably connect more with my white side, but I really feel both. Like I genuinely feel a connection, I would say probably equal to both. And probably more of that has come through as I've become an adult and I've thought through those things. And and when I really like examine my worldview and why I see certain things the way that I do and why I, and how I interact with people and what I believe to be true, I really know that so much of that was influenced by black culture and by my family culture. So I know it doesn't, I mean, maybe that sounds like a cop-out answer, but hopefully not. So I think that I do think I identify very much with both. Now that puts me in a kind of a different situation because I don't look mixed to most people. Like I'm so, so light. But the funny thing too, is that my Whenever I was in LA or even still now, my dad lived in a predominantly black area as well. And black people know that I'm mixed, but mostly white people don't know that I'm mixed. I pass as white. So there's something very comforting about being in all black communities and neighborhoods because I don't have to explain anything. I don't have to say anything. They just like, oh, you're just light skin. Like they just know you're mixed and you're light skin and that's it. Like there's no conversation versus being around a group of white people who don't know and who wouldn't guess then the things that you overhear or you experience because people don't know that you're a woman of color, which is another conversation. But so in some ways there's like just more of a comfort being around black folks because I don't have to like do any explaining. 
but obviously being raised by my white family, I have great connections to that and all of that, that represents as well. So, yeah, no, absolutely. And do you find that because you feel pretty even, do you feel as if, you know, you're finding yourself that you're having to choose a side or when there are conversations with your black family about white people, or if they're white side of the family is talking about black people, what are some of the things that are wrestling with you with that? Yeah. So my family dynamic, I mean, I didn't necessarily feel like I had to choose growing up by any means. Although my white family was pretty silent on my biraciality, they didn't really talk about it. And some of that has come up now recently in light of current events. But my stepdad who helped raise me is a white police officer. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So it adds a whole nother level of just, I don't know. I mean, it's emotionally, it is a lot of conflict for me. And so I recently had conversation with a couple conversations with him and my mom, and they were really hard really hard conversations. So in the current climate, I absolutely feel like I'm having to choose and I will choose my blackness any day right now over anything else in order to promote what I believe needs to be promoted. And, you know, there's the, I think a lot of biracial and multiracial people right now are, they feel like their backs are kind of against the wall in some of their family relationships. I know other people that have been experiencing that recently and I was willing to have those conversations because I feel like that's the most important thing. Did it cause potentially some strife and like strain in those relationships? Yes, that's just what it is. There's no way around that. So right now I'm having to choose. And But as an adult, it's different than being a kid. You're empowered. You can choose and you can do and say what you want and speak up for what you believe. There's always going to be cost, but I mean, I'm willing to to do that now. No, that totally makes sense. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. All right, Teresha, do you feel close to one side or the other choices, all the things? Yeah. So my mom, Nicole, similar to you that my parents split when I was two, but my mom abandoned the family. And then my dad had me for um, like elementary age. And then my grandmother and aunt who are black, I mean, they, I mean, they were very active in my raising and my upbringing as a child. So I was over their house every weekend from the moment I was like a little, like two until they took me full time, which was like in like sixth grade, middle school is when I transitioned over full time. And being like, I have like this, it's interesting if my, I wish my brother was here for part of this conversation because his association is so different from mine. Like, you know, the way that we look at our mom for him, for example, he completely disowns the white side, even though he's super, super, super fair skinned. I mean, he has some like thick curls, so you know he's something, but he's like, I'm black all day. And I'm like, bro, you're like a little bit darker than this white t-shirt I have on right now. <laughs> like he associates it with it very differently just because like the white, my mother who was white was the one that left the family and like didn't want to raise us. And I kind of always viewed it as like, I always had like this longing to like want to know who she was and just like the other side of me, just, you know, I feel like any kid would with their parent dynamic, but I was raised. It's interesting dynamics. I was raised black. It's interesting, Nicole, like when I'm in uh, growing up, because I lived in predominantly white neighborhoods, when I met other like full black women or people, I was, there was like this inner black racism that I, I experienced like most often. 
Cause like you light skin, you got the curly hair, you think you better than everybody else. And it's like, I'm just light skin with curly hair. Like I just want to be friends. Like there's, yeah. <laughs> it's not like this, um, you know, pedestal that I just naturally feel like I'm on because of my external appearance, but because of like media and society, how they portray beauty. Like, so I always kind of like struggled in predominantly black environments. Cause that was usually how I was treated or that was like the first instinct or like the first reaction that I would get. But I think because of my grandmother, she's 88 now. Good Lord, she's like getting up there. And I just think because of what she grew and was raised in and had to overcome, even though I was raised in a Black family, it was very much like white people are better, like date white, do not bring a Black man home. So it was kind of like, I don't want to say like this shame against like us being Black, but there was always like this teaching of you have to like strive to want to like adapt to this like white world, but it was never taught to me in a way as if like that's within me or like that's part of who I am. It was like this thing that's outside of me. So I I always had like this multi-layered struggle (laughs) with like, oh, my white side left, but okay, but black people are fine. But there's like, you know, just because of systematic racism, like there's ways my grandma views the world just because things she's experienced and what she was taught and how she had to overcome things. And that's how she taught up, taught me. It's interesting now as an adult, I can see her language changing because I'm like, that's not okay. Like, let's re-talk about that. And having to like have di- like difficult conversations with her to sh- not necessarily shift her beliefs, but shift what she chooses to like lay on me or like claim as a truth. So I've always identified Black just because that's what I was predominantly raised as. And like, I didn't know the other side of my family. And like in regards to like expressing one narrative against another, sometimes I'd be like too pro-black in certain environments, especially and I'm like Michigan, I'm from Detroit, but like even Detroit, like the racial dynamic here is like I grew up in the white suburbs. So if I'm here, I can't say I'm from Detroit because that's like black and it's like this pride thing. It's like, no girl, you're the little biracial girl that grew up in the burbs, like you can't claim this. So I like rep it hard and like, Nicole, I really feel for you too of like just making, especially now, like making sure like that we're vocal and like, like pushing the messages that need to be pushed to make progress in regards to everything that's going on. So it's like, I've always been like wrestled internally from like black, white, but then like black and biracial with inside of the segment too. Oh yeah. There's a lot of layers. <laughs> oh I'm like, what would it be like just to be you know can we just be <laughs> all right like is that good enough like, there's so much exhaustion having to like deal with and to like figure out how to navigate it in addition to like just I don't know I guess there's exhaustion on like multiple fronts regardless of where you're from or not but yeah oh totally I so agree yeah I think that yeah a little bit of background on mine My parents are still together. Again, my mom's white. My dad is black. And growing up, though, I was much closer and saw my white side of the family much more often than the black side of my family, mainly because my dad's family did not approve of my mom because of her race. And so race was introduced fairly early on in my relationship because I literally was being, you know, blocked and, and, for good reason, because there was a lot of tension, there was a lot of heat. And my dad just didn't really want myself and my sister to experience that kind of environment. And, you know, years and years later, I mean, gosh, this was my dad's mom passed away 
I guess it was maybe eight-ish years ago. And it was really beautiful to experience my papa actually apologized to my mom. We went to her funeral and um, he apologized to my mom. And that was maybe the third or fourth time I'd seen him in person. And it was so beautiful. And because, again, I hadn't experienced it too much, but just because I knew how hurt that made my dad and my mom and to experience that kind of long time coming apology was just something that I'm super grateful to have been able to experience and see come to fruition. And so having been closer to my white side of the family, having grew up in white suburbs, having been part of a pretty affluent background as far as my parents growing up, it definitely was where I identified and understood and had more beliefs on the white side of my family because that was literally my environment. And if there was other black people in the, there was like maybe two other black kids in my school. And so I just was never really opened up to the black side of my family. And obviously, you know, with the curls and whatever else, you know, people are the, what are you question came up quite a bit. However, because I'm super light skinned, you know, people knew something was going on there. And so you know, there's opportunities and, you know, funny moments of, you know, my, I did hip hop dance, but obviously I'm in the class, like all white people. And so, (laughs) which is funny, but, you know, and they would listen to more like hip hop music than me. And they'd be like, Jordan, like we're way more black than you are. Like what's up with that? And again, you know, I take it lighthearted and whatever else, but I think that as I grew up, I got more and more curious about the black side of my family and what that is like. And of course I've experienced racism, generally speaking, which I want to get into in the next question, because people knew that I was black. I think that there were some benefits to people knowing that my family was affluent, um, mainly because of my dad's job that they hid some of that or did not express it as openly as they may have because of my dad's sphere of influence. But I do think that as I got older, I understood why I felt some of the things that I felt growing up because I was partially black, that it helped me understand like why things didn't feel right in different rooms. And even my dad took us to a Kirk Franklin concert, which he's like a, I don't know, mainstream, like a gospel singer. And I remember it was the first time I was in a majority black room and I felt extreme anxiety and I love Kirk Franklin's music. Right. And to be in a, like, I'm used to being in white people room. So I was comfortable there. And so then to go to this concert where there's black people everywhere, people are loud, people are like doing all sorts of stuff. And I was like, what is going on? And, but I knew like, At a certain moment in the concert, I did just realize, like, I want to get to know this side more, even though I don't know how I am supposed to act in this environment, because I'm, like, supposed to know these cultural references, like, you know, how people in concerts, they, like, talk about things in between their songs, and I'm like, I have no idea what these people are talking about, but apparently this is a laugh right now, so it was just, like, (laughs) really difficult, and so I think that, yeah, I would say that, and now my dad's both sides both parents are gone but my dad's other family is actually like down the street from me and if it was an emergency I probably still wouldn't have them be the first ones to call because we just aren't super close so I mean I do I guess relate to a lot of the white culture references and whatnot growing up like it was like Spice Girls and Britney Spears like it wasn't like Black Street and whatever else like I just have those references but I think 
from an experience of like, oh, you're the token black girl in the room or oh, those sorts of things. I absolutely relate to the black side of my family in a lot of ways. So with that, you know, I want to talk about when you've experienced racism and what that has looked like, whether it was you were called something or, you know, you were taken out of an opportunity or put into an opportunity even. What have some of those things looked like because you're biracial? So the first memory that I have of just recognizing and knowing some Thing racist happened was in elementary school. I was probably about five years old and a boy used the N word and he's very specifically directed at my dad. And I was like, what? I mean, I remember I did not know the word. I'd never heard it. I didn't know what it was, but I knew something was wrong. Like, you, you know, I could feel that something was very wrong. And I came home told my mom and I remember her just getting this look on her face, just, you know, devastated. And she got tears in her eyes. And she was like, well, you need to call your dad, you know, cause by now my parents weren't together and she just did not feel, I think, equipped to have that conversation with me, which looking back, like, I wish that she also would have talked with me about it. Cause I think it's everyone's responsibility, but I understand in the moment that her feeling like she couldn't talk with me. And so that was the, and so I called my dad and I remember him just like deep sighing. And that was the first time anybody pointed out the fact to me that our skin colors were all different. I mean, like, I just hadn't processed that even yet. Like, my dad's darker than me. My mom's lighter than me. I just had never even put all of those together. You know, like, five is a little kid. You just, your mom's your mom, your dad's your dad. So that was really the first one that really stands out to me. I would say, overall, I ex- experienced a lot of microaggressions. I mean, you know, we even the, our question of what are you, I mean, people don't even realize that that is a microaggression. Just, like, the constant, like, little jabs, little jabs, little jabs again and again and again of like saying, well, me, if I tell someone I'm biracial or I say I'm half black, then they say, no, you're not. Or they say, well, you're the lightest girl, you know, mixed girl I've ever seen. I'm like, me too, but that's not, doesn't change the fact. Or people said like, show me a picture of your dad. I have to prove that I have a black parent or, you know, it's just, all of those little things that kind of, they start to make up a narrative in your mind of who you are or who you share your, your identity with or how do you share it? Yeah. I mean, those are the ones that kind of stand out the most. I've heard people say some very racist things like I was referencing before in a room with me there, not knowing that I'm biracial. There have been times when I have not said anything and I haven't spoken up. And then there's been times where I've said, oh, by the way, I'm half black. And just, you know, people realizing you just never know. Like, and I think people hide a lot of their racist thinking or ignorance really well. And when you pass as white, like I do, you see, unfortunately, how people would normally be behaving or responding or what they would normally be sharing. So, and I think too, even what Jerisha was saying, like, I for sure have experienced colorism I don't consider it racism, but in the black community, yes, like I have had some very, you know, unkind comments come at me for something that's totally out of my control, my skin color, my hair texture, you know, all of those things, which is unfortunate, but I would say overall, I have been accepted by the black community, but there is always that too, that comparison of like lightness that runs deep, deep, deep. And that's, you know, something that 
I know a lot of people want addressed and want to deal with, and, and there definitely needs to be healing in that, but that's another side of the coin too. Yeah, absolutely. Jerisha, you have experiences? Like microaggressions, like growing up in predominantly white communities and like the fact that we even, like the suburb that we lived in was, it's one of the richest cities in the state, mm-hmm. but we were like, my gr- I, don't, I still don't know how my grandmother afforded her and my aunt afforded for us to live in that city. Like I know when they took me in, they moved out there just so I could go to a better school district. My grandmother was an educator in Detroit public schools. So she would like drop me off in my white suburban school. And then she would drive all the way to Detroit to go teach. And like, she taught it, like she taught in the hood. Like it was a rough environment. So I still don't really know how she scraped by or like would post date checks or whatever, just so we could live there. But there was this, there was constant microaggressions of like, why do you live in this neighborhood? What do your parents do for a living? I remember at the time, my aunt, she loved purses, handbags. I mean, handbags and cars were like, she would splurge on. And there was in high school, like maybe my junior year, like right around the time I could start driving, she was like testing out different cars before she figured out what she wanted to buy. So like one week, she would just, she rented a couple cars before she purchased one. So I was showing up to school in like a Corvette, then like a Hummer, then like another car. They're like, do you guys sell drugs? Like, what do you, and I know that that question would not have been what was asked if we were white or if I was white, because there was tons of rich white kids that went to my school who had multiple cars, but that just was like assumed uh, just because they were white. You know, when I could start, I really didn't really experience racism Like it was a lot of microaggressions, like Nicole had mentioned. That was most of what I experienced or like a lot of the more like harshness that I experienced was more within the black community versus necessarily the white peers or things like that. But it was really when I started driving, when I would just get pulled over, only when I was in like suburban areas because of the one, the the car that I was driving and two, I guess just, I don't know. And that happened two or three times um, in high school living in Michigan. And I'd always have to just show my driver's license, like prove that I lived in the neighborhood, like prove that I was on my way home. They were like, well, whose car is this? I'm like, it's my grandmother's. Like it was always, like that happened two or three times, but I didn't really experience like direct racism or like in my face racism until I went to college. And I started off college at Iowa State University. There's like 3% of the entire state is black. So going to this school, I was the first black person some people had ever met in real life. And I'm mixed. Um, And my very first roommate, I don't even remember her name, but she hid her racism real good for like the first two and a half weeks. Okay. So I move into my dorm room and I'm just like, hey, oh my gosh, we're in college. Let's do this. Like, nice to meet you. I mean, she was from a really small town in Iowa. And maybe after a week and a half, she was like, okay, can I ask you a question? I was like, sure. She asked me like, well, what are you? Where are you from? And I took it like, you know, she was just curious. I'm like, let me, you know. Good to know your roommate. Good to know your roommate, right? I'm like, that's totally (laughs) cool. And she was like, well, you're the first black person I've ever met in like real life. I was like, girl, wait till you meet a real one. Like, I'm good. But like, there's so much juice to go around. And she was kind of cool until I started tutoring the athletic department. And I got, you know, I got really cool with some of the uh, the fellas that played football. And one of my really good friends, Ernest, he was from Alabama. I mean, big black man. He played football. I don't know what position he played, but whatever position where you got to be big and hit people, like that's what he did. Jordan, you probably know. And we were hanging out in the room one day and I remember it so vividly. I was in school for architecture. I was drawing 
something for class. The Jeffersons were playing and Ernest was sitting on the couch, just kind of like chilling. He had finished his homework. And my roommate walks in and she's like, starts dropping the N-word. Like, what is this N-word doing in our room? And like went off. And that was the first time I had ever like experienced it so bluntly. And I'm this little tiny girl. I started like screaming and raging and Ernest was so calm. And he grabbed me. He was like, Jay, calm down. Like, calm. I'm like, F that. Like, what is this girl doing? Like, she can't say that. And, but it was just so interesting in the moment when I reflect back how calm Ernest was. Cause it wasn't, that wasn't something unexpected for him to experience, but it was just, it caught me so off guard. So that was the first time I experienced it like blatantly. And then she moved out like three days later. And we would see each other on campus. She would like, not speak, not address me. And then another time, and it only happened when I was in Iowa where it was like dead on in my face. I had another experience with, it typically happens when I have black men around me. That's typically when it has happened now that I'm like counting, remembering patterns. Again, driving, I had three black dudes in the car with me. We were on our way to the Sigma house. We're about to go to a party, meeting my girlfriends there. We were leaving tutoring. So I was like, hop in the car. Let's just drive on over. And Iowa State's campus is like nine minutes wide. Like it is not big at all. And we got pulled over and they made every single one of us get out of the car. They um, carted all of the men. They put some of the men in handcuffs. They put me in the backseat of the police car. And it was literally like one of my white friends drove by, popped out of the car and was like, hey, what's going on here? And he like knew the cop because he was also from Ames. And that was the only thing that kind of like let us off the hook. And that really changed my perspective and just like my outlook on life after that. And just like it, I think created like a much deeper like tenderness that I have for black men that I didn't have before. So yeah, that was the first time where it was like in my face. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I had a few instances where I got called like an uh uh-oh Oreo, which is like the white cookies in the black center. And I actually got called a prairie N-word when I had moved to Green Bay, Wisconsin. And I was like, (laughs) I hadn't heard it either that I had to look it up because I knew what the N-word was obviously. But then when you threw the word prairie on there, it was this white blonde kid. He clearly had no cultural understanding of life. But you know, I think that it felt as if too, and I don't know if you guys experienced this. I went to three different high schools growing up. We moved a lot. And every single high school, when Martin Luther King Jr. Day came around, who was the spokesperson for all black and white people? Me. And I would get interviewed by the newspaper. I would be in the plays. Like I would be in the, and I'm like, Oh my gosh, just because I exist, all of a sudden you guys are like, you know, putting me around being like, look, racism is solved. Like black and white people can have babies, like everything's fine. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what are you even talking about? So that always was really uncomfortable. I hated Martin Luther King Day, not because I didn't believe in it, but because I just was like, don't come at me as if I am the solution of all black and white people coming together in kumbaya Like, this is not how this works. So yeah, I've had a, a range of things happen and, and whatnot. And, and especially with recent events, you know, we're speaking in 2020. And I would love to hear a little bit about, you know, how the recent events of George Floyd, Maude Arbery, Breonna Taylor, all of these people have affected you in your life and in your business and whatnot. So Jerisha, if you want to go first. 
Oh man, like personally being married to a black man that had, who's from Laurel, Mississippi, we've had some very like dynamic conversations and pillow talk because we just both view the world very differently because of our experiences. And I think, I don't know, like Jordan, I can relate to you. It's like anytime some black cultural event popped up, like you're supposed to know everything about black people and like know how to solve all said problems and like come up with said solutions. And because we exist, like racism doesn't exist. And I don't know. I mean, I think like affected my life personally. Now I would say it is just like, Oh, being married to my husband, like it has opened up my scope of like the real depth of like the healing work that actually needs to happen. Like, I think like I, there's a lot of things that I, like I know and you can like, you can read and learn about, but for him having such like deep experience, like his third grade teacher was in the KKK and like that was branded on the man's arm. And that was his elementary school principal. And he would walk around with like the KKK symbols open. And like, so there's just certain experience about the black experience that I just, like, you know about it, but it's like, I had never experienced it firsthand that my husband has like really opened my eyes to. And just like, I think even recognizing just layers of privilege that I have because I am biracial, because I am light-skinned, because I am a woman that I was aware of, but didn't really fully understand like the gravity of it. So it's just really like, I don't know, it shift that has really just opened my eyes and just, I think just shifted that dynamic of, I feel like the responsibility that I hold now. And then in business, I mean, I'm not even going to say surprisingly enough, I'm not actually surprised by this, but like my business has almost five X since COVID happened. And during like when right around the time George Floyd things happened, our business doubled. So like I have significantly financially, I don't want to say benefited, but our business has dramatically grown despite all the current events that are happening. And a lot of the clients that I work with are predominantly women of color. And many of them have told me like, like part of the reason why I hired you is because like one, you know your stuff and two, you understand me culturally. Like I want to be working with somebody who understands the cultural background and just like under, like is not just doing this to teach me how to make money, but like there's a generational wealth ripple effect that we're able to create by working together. And it's just been interesting, the dialogue we've been having inside of our paid communities and like on my team, like most of my team is black or of color, but it's interesting. Now we have a white woman who does my sales and that's been interesting dialogue. Cause it's like a white woman is now the gatekeeper to enroll in this black woman's program. And so there's been a lot of like really healthy and healing conversations between me and her and just also like her perspective on the world. And even my clients who had to go through that process of like talking to her before they enrolled, some of the questions that they would ask her is that, so wait a minute, you a white woman? <laughs> you work for Jerisha? <laughs> and it's like, okay. And then like, them like almost interviewing her of like, well, why did you choose to work for her? Why did you choose to work for a black woman? Like it's, so it's been this just, you know, we didn't know to include that in the sales training on uh, necessarily like, so I had to educate her on just like how others may be perceiving this experience that they're having just from like a cultural perspective. But it's been a really interesting dynamic. And I think it's just made us like being a small business owner in corporate America, you expect for them to have like the diversity and inclusion policies and procedures and like have these things laid out. And I think as a small business owner, primarily we can be thinking about just like marketing sales and delivery without necessarily thinking about like just how race and culture impacts like this small business's culture and like what we need to still be conscious of and doing, especially if you work with clients, regardless of who you work with, but like 
how that interfaces with your clients and also how that dynamic works out with your team. So I feel like it's been a really, I don't know, I feel like we've always been conscious of it, but we were like putting things like in documented procedures now (laughs) and like just having more processes around it and just also just creating more space to have the dialogue. You know, when I started my business, I said, when I have employees, Juneteenth is a nat- is a holiday at this company. People are going to, just like you have off the 4th of July and every other white holiday, we're going to be off for July, Juneteenth. And that was something that was always really important with me when we created the policies with the company. That was before all of this happened. And even when this did happen, I don't know. I just think it's, you know, we don't have full on health insurance within our company for our, our team members yet. But everybody had access to therapy when this was going on. Everybody had, you know, mental health days that were just given to them when this was going on. And I know my employees at the time, they were like, this is the first time I've ever worked for a company that like recognized that this is something that I'm dealing with. And it's like, I don't have to just come to work and like put on face, even though like, you know, you may not be able to get out of bed that morning. And that's just because, I mean... I get it too. And like, I'm also feeling that too. So we can offer that. So it's been, I don't know, it's been an interesting time period, but I know for, like I have not shut up. I have not been quiet. I have been pushing the envelope, especially with our marketing content of like really like emphasizing the importance of black wealth and our ability to articulate our value so that we can get paid based off of the results that we are delivering and just wrecking, like just really pushing that like socioeconomic status importance that you can create through entrepreneurship and business. So I feel like I've been like exhausted, but like going hard. Like I'm like, we're going to get every dollar we can collect right now as much as possible, as ethically as possible, as aligned with an integrity as possible. So I don't know. Good. I feel like I've been like turbocharged. <laughs> I know, oh, I know, totally. Yeah, Nicole, what's been your experience? Um, well, I was thinking I'll speak kind of actually more directly to my day job, like my regular day job being homeschooling right now, that I'm very excited to see so many more women that are homeschooling really seeking out ways to include diversity into their homeschooling and their educations. There's kind of been this like huge burst of people looking for those book titles and that information. And how do I include BIPOC individuals and what we're learning? And, and I'm excited because people are playing catch up. I've been doing this for years in our current curriculum. So I've just been trying to make myself an available resource to people and share what I can because it does, it's exhausting. You have to be intentional. You have to hunt down these things to educate your children in this way. And to educate from a decolonized perspective is not a natural way to teach in America. It's very difficult. It can feel really isolating. So I've had just really great conversations and trying to partner with some other people that I know that are doing that. And that's just exciting to see. And I think too, like my husband is an entrepreneur as well. And his company has been around about a year and the intentionality that I'm watching and my husband's white, the intentionality that I've been watching him lead his company with in terms of diversity and inclusion has been really inspiring. And also I will say to his credit, everything that he's been experiencing has been kind of separate from what I've been experiencing. Like we're paralleled in our, I think in our, the emotional weight of the murders of 2020 specifically and all of the response, but he's been having his own experience and he's really angry and it's really good. And my therapist, she said, she's like, well, just to put it delicately, she's like, it's really good for white men to be angry. Like white men should be angry. And they're, we're not seeing enough of that. And so 
that has been a really personal experience just watching him deal with his own like anger at what's happening in the black community and I'm like good like that's what it should be and I didn't have to do it you know what I mean like he's doing his own thing and his own work and he's reading and educating himself and it's really good so I think that and I personally too just I think like in the same sentiment as Jerisha I feel like I have a fire in my belly that I feel like I had before but has been catalyzed and crystallized. And I kind of made a commitment to myself that I will never stop talking about this. Like I will never stop talking about it. This from this point forward in my life, this will be part of how I share myself with people. Like I, there's no going back. I don't think you can go back. So in that way, like, I think a lot of people are going to look back and know that this was a pivoting year for so many of us. We were marked at this time and it's going to look different from here forward. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. I went through a bit of grieving. It felt like I'm not a crier. I was crying every single day and it felt like it was like an exhaustive cry. I was just like, I'm tired of crying. And I just was so fed up. And, you know, at the time, I was running this event and I'm very intentional about curating mixed rooms because actually mixed rooms are where I'm most comfortable. And probably because it's like, I don't have to slant or feel like I have to shift how I am. It's just like, if there's white people, black people, Middle Eastern, Asian people, we all different. So I'm just going to be the mixed person and no one's going to be like, who are you and what are you trying to do over here? So I'm very intentional about curating mixed rooms. And for an event that I was having on during all of this, I had, I think it was seven women in the group and one of them was Latina, um, but there was no black women in that group. And at the time there was a moment when I was curating this group that I was like, I need to include somebody that's black that does VIP days. And I did reach out to one and she didn't respond to me. And so it was difficult because I was like, VIP days are rare anyway. And so having to like search and devour the internet, I just was like, I'm like, I can't focus on this. Like I just need speakers and we're just going to move forward. And then obviously as this event is going during this time, it was like one of those moments where like I have very diverse group coaching program. I have very diverse clients and all that. And it was a bit of a, I should have pushed harder. And I came out and was just like, I'm really sorry that I did not take the time and I did not use the same intentionality that I use in other areas of my business to curate this event to be more diverse. And I, again, just like whatever people call it falling on the sword or whatever, but I'm not I recognize where I went wrong. And so a very similar event, like we have the majority actually are black Asian or Middle Eastern now, which is very exciting to me. And I feel like is a better representation of my voice in that way. And I've just been having a lot of intentional conversations with black women in our industry of, again, as somebody who does support these clients and these students and whatnot, how can I continue to move forward with this? Because again, my scope, my majority of my life at this point, how old I am for 18 years, I was around white people for the majority of my life. And so I'm having to educate myself and I'm not saying that I know everything just because I'm half black 
And so I'm having those conversations just one-on-one and learning and understanding how I can show up better for the black women and black people in my life. And so the 2020 events definitely helped me be more intentional about it. And something that I guess my graphic designer picked up on about me was that I do kind of like culturally ambiguous things. And so she always drew these beautiful illustrations of really culturally ambiguous people. And I didn't tell her to do that, but because of how she saw me and how she saw me showing up for others, she was like, we're going to have a culture ambiguous group. And I was like, that's really amazing that she picked up on that. And so I need to, again, shout louder that that is like, you know, whoever you are, whatever you are, whatever's going on with you. Like, I want to know that like I am a space for you to be supported. I had conversations that were difficult with my team. I have two black women on my team and two white women on my team. And so we're having this core team meeting. And I said, listen, we ain't going to talk about business today. Like we're going to talk about racism and we're just going to have a very open conversation. And, you know, again, it's a mixed room, right? So it was like, I don't know how this is going to go, but we'll see. And I got feedback from everybody that it was such a beautiful conversation and it really was. And it was where everyone was like telling it how it is in their own ways. And I think that everyone was just able to listen and understand different perspectives. I did the same thing with my group coaching program, mixed crowd. Okay. I was like, we're not going to talk about how you're going to build your business today. We're going to talk about racism. So let's open up the floor and talk. And again, it's one of those things where you can either decide to just be like, oh, you know, I'm praying for everybody. Hope everybody's getting through this time. And it's another thing to be like for the next hour, hour and a half, we're going to have a conversation about racism in a mixed room. And like, this is happening. And it was really like, honestly, one of my favorite things I've ever done in my business is having those conversations. And because it showed me like, people are willing to listen, people are willing to understand perspectives. And I think with a lot of the cancel culture and a lot of the like, all of this stuff going on, people feel scared to talk. And I'm like, okay, this is not what should be happening. We should be sharing more and being open more. And this is not what's happening. And so I wanted to create those environments in my communities and my business. And it was really amazing. So I think that it's led to more intentionality of showing up and saying, Hey, like I am half black, half white, but that also doesn't mean I know everything. And that also doesn't mean I've experienced everything. I recognize my privilege as a light skinned woman. I recognize all of these things and like, I'm going to continue to improve and get better. And so, yeah, I think that's what we've all kind of been able to experience and we'll continue to experience moving forward as we continue to step out. And so as we wrap up, I want to give you guys a little bit of a floor to just share something that you would want my listeners to know about being biracial. Anyone want to go first, Dorisha? <laughs> <laughs> oh, like, what do y'all need to know about being biracial? I don't even know. Like, what we call ourselves might change, as you've heard through this conversation multiple times over. That does not mean that we're confused or lack identity or, I don't know, you know, like, maybe that. <laughs> I don't know about being biracial. is like, we're not this or that. We're both and Like one thing that kind of irritates me sometimes is maybe I'll just say this. Maybe this is something I want people to know about being British, but this is something that I kind of like, 
ah, okay. You know how like everybody's like, well, you know, white people are no longer becoming, are no longer the majority. Most of the country in America is becoming brown and mixed and interracial and by whatever date, whatever statistic says, we're going to be like, brown people will be in the majority. And I'm like, just because brown people are in the majority, like from a statistical standpoint, does not mean these issues will just immediately be fixed or will be immediately erased. Yes, some of like the white folks who created this system will start dying off, but they like, I don't know. It's just that sometimes it kind of irritates me when people will just like say that and be like, well, that's the cure. Like if we just keep having interracial babies, like more brown people will be here. If more people immigrate, like all these problems will just kind of like dissipate. And I don't know. I'm like, it's not that simple. And just because you can be in the majority of like a population dynamic doesn't mean that you still can't be marginalized, minimized, like pulled out of opportunities and all of that. So that's just something that kind of like, that's good. Me. No, that was a good takeaway. I had a lot of good takeaways. <laughs> when, you read, when you said it, we had to ask him that question, I'm like, what the hell am I going to say when she asks? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know. Throw a curveball in there a little bit. It was good. all right Nicole what about you well it's true too because I always say to people like when we're talking about educating our children I say you know the majority of the world is brown and black skinned like that's almost the whole world and yet we're teaching from a Eurocentric this group of white people did this thing perspective is not we're just we're also missing out on all the beauty and the culture and the heritage and the stories of other people. I would agree with the naming. Like I actually had a, one of my white friends actually messaged me and asked me like a couple months ago. And I was like, Oh, thank you for asking me. Like she said, like, what do you prefer to be? How do you refer to yourself? And I was like, Oh, it changes. Like I'll say biracial if I'm being like more formal, I'll say mixed and mixed. Usually like in the black community, you just say mix. Like one says biracial. I mean, you know, I grew up saying I'm mixed or I grew up saying, I grew up even using the word mulatto and I grew up and, or everybody just called me Oreo. It was normal. Like that was, it wasn't even derogatory, you know? So crazy. I would never do that now, but (laughs) I was like, (laughs) so I do think it changes. And I think that's good to know. Like, and sometimes I'll just refer to myself as black or I'll say like my blackness and I'm referring to that part of my family or whatever. So all of that to yes. I would say the other thing that we've touched on it is that, you know, just recognizing that meeting a biracial person or a multiracial person, like they do not represent all biracial or all multiracial people the same way that meeting one black individual or one Latina individual or one indigenous person does not represent that entire group of people. None of us are a monolith and we have to be able to represent our own selves, our own identities, the parts of our family and our individual culture and heritage. And those stories, those personal stories are the things that build up empathy. Like those are the things that actually make people and help people understand that what you see a snapshot of on TV is not representative of an entire people group and nor could it ever be. So I think that, and, and I think too, just, I would encourage people to, not necessarily look at someone who's biracial as like a specimen or some like exotic creature, but to just remember like that's a human and they don't owe you anything and they can answer your questions if they want to, but they don't have to. And to treat them with the same kind of, you know, respect and dignity you would anyone else. Yeah. Yeah. I love those takeaways. Such good takeaways. (laughs) 
And yeah, I think that something that I definitely would love for my listeners to know is that I hope that you are encouraged by this conversation and I hope that you have had your mind opened and your perspective shifted and whatnot just about not only what has gone on in the past couple of months, but just racism and identity and all of those areas in the sense that, you know, we all are trying to figure ourselves out. So this isn't just like even biracial people, you may be trying to figure yourself out in a different way. Maybe your parents both have, are both in different religions, or maybe, you know, you come from, there was a really interesting study that someone sent over to me about people who come from two different religions and how that affects how they view religion or how they view the world. And, you know, I think that a lot of us are walking dichotomies and it may not be in a really outward way, like black and white, you know, race. It may not be super outward, like Jewish and Christian, but we all have areas in ourselves that can feel a lot of tension. And so I encourage you to explore that as somebody who, again, usually just is like, I don't like confrontation. I'm not trying to like figure all this out right now, but I encourage you to actually explore that because just as we were exploring this conversation about race, I want you to be able to explore those areas in your own life and continue this conversation around race and, you know, don't give up. Don't say, okay, you know, tagged a few people over here, continue this conversation because it needs to be had, especially if you want to be an ally and you want to continue to share and help promote black voices, I encourage you to do so. And so real quick, I want you both to share where people can find you and where they can follow you and DM you and say thank you. Drisha, go ahead and go first. Yeah. If you're listening to this, as always, like I would love if you tagged us on Instagram stories, I'm at Jerisha Hawk and just like share with us what your top takeaway was from listening to today's episode so we can continue the conversation. That's the best place to get a hold of me is at Jerisha Hawk. So Tag us in your stories and let's continue the combo in DMs. Yes, absolutely. All right, Nicole. Instagram, I'm at Startup Wife. And you could probably find it by my name, Nicole Cottrell too, but at Startup Wife. And then on Facebook, Nicole Cottrell is my page there. And I'm definitely on Instagram more. It's my preference. So I'd love to hear from people there too and hear see your tags as well. Yes, absolutely. So we'll have all the links. Go and chat with these ladies. And I just want to say thank you to Jerisha and Nicole for being open to having this conversation and being vulnerable and sharing your perspectives and whatnot. Just because again, it's it can be a semi difficult conversation to have. And so I appreciate you creating a safe space and then also stepping into the safe space to share your experiences. So thank you, ladies. And thanks again, listeners, for listening to another episode. And I will see you next week. Thanks for listening to the System Save Me podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or send a screenshot on Instagram while tagging us at System Saved Me.